Hello everyone, this is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. Uh, Frank Pelican. And to this week we are going to be doing the top five sequels of the 2000s. <clears throat> Frank, I want to start off this week by asking you um, about this topic. What do you think about sequels in general? Like, it, does it depend on the movie? I mean, are you generally not a fan of sequels? Yeah, it depends on if the sequel feels like there's a relevance to it. Like, I think that... So when we first started talking about doing this list, it was just much broader. It was like the top five sequels in general, but there's way too many, I think, to pare down to five, at least easily. So, you know, we went with the 2000s. Um, yeah, obviously there's a lot of franchises that have like what could be considered unnecessary sequels, like horror franchises specifically, but also stuff like, like the Die Hard series and Lethal Weapon and stuff where movies have been made that maybe it was like one movie too far or it's just like an attempt to continue like making money off an established property. Um, everything on this list I think feels, it either improves upon the movie that it's a sequel to or it's a necessary continuation of a story. Um, in sequel form. So I think those two things are important. Um, you know, even if a movie's not as good as the original, like, movie it's a sequel to, it's still going to have, like, some merit. But, you know, some sequels are just terrible. Um, what didn't make this list? From the 2000s? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I don't know. Okay. Um, well, I mean, there's like, there's some movies that are kind of, like, go along with these, so, um, like, Before Midnight isn't on the list, which is a really good sequel, um, things like, like, The Last Jedi, um, the, a lot of the Marvel movies, you know, I think are really good sequels, but not as good as the ones that are on here, you know, specifically, like, I don't know, like, Captain America 2, um, Thor Ragnarok. You like Captain America 2? I do. Okay. I like, I like, uh, I like Civil War, I think, more. Yeah. I think Civil War is a better sequel, but I think Winter Soldier is a better movie than the first Captain America. Hmm. I am better more. Like, as, like, an action-y spy movie, really. Like, less of a superhero movie and more of, like, a, almost like a James Bond-style movie. I yeah, like it I can see that, I guess. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I do. You know, I enjoyed this kind of like the smallness of the first Captain America. Infinity War is better than Age of Ultron. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. Guardians of the Galaxy Two is really. Oh yeah, that's definitely sure. Okay, Ant Man Two, from what I understand, like I haven't seen it, but it was good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. I like those Ant Man movies because they're um, like ninety five, hundred minutes in and out, and they're fun and nice blend of comedy and action. Really comic booky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, Ant-Man 2 was pretty good. Um, I probably liked it a little, just a little bit more than the original. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump right into number five. Number five, you have Blade Runner 2049, which currently has an 87% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, which was released uh, pretty recent in 2017. Do you want to go ahead and let everybody know just a little bit about the sequel? So it's a true sequel to Blade Runner, um, although... Initially, it just seems like kind of a, like a continuation of the universe and not as much of a sequel. Um, but eventually, like, you find that it's legitimately like a sequel to the first one. Uh, Ryan Gosling is a replicant cop who hunts other replicants. Um, you know, set in the, the same, like, 
I don't know, like almost like post, not really post-apocalyptic, but definitely like an altered United States where there's been some environmental like catastrophes that have left just like pockets of civilization. Um, sort of dystopian in the way that it's it's presented. Um, definitely where technology like rules everyone's lives, um, but still has like the grittiness of the first one. Like it still feels the stuff that takes place on the ground sort of like in a way from like you know the the skyscrapers and the flying cars or whatever is still very very lived in very grimy um pretty pretty long movie you know i, I think i think over three hours or close to three hours but two hours two hours and 44 minutes yeah it doesn't necessarily feel like it's that long when you're watching it um really beautiful cinematography uh some impressive you know like vistas and landscapes there's some scenes that are like immediately come to mind as being i don't know like incredibly like aesthetically impressive um the first time they go into vegas like seeing that you know the oranges and the just like burned out like desert um the scene in the rain at the end um when they're in uh, i can't remember the name of the company the the headquarters of the replicant company um you know, like, those scenes are all really impressive. It's just a very, like, a worthy successor to a movie that I think a lot of people consider one of the preeminent science fiction movies of, you know, like, ever, maybe. Um, really good performances. Uh, Gosling is good in it. There's some really small roles, like, who's Jared Leto, right, plays the yeah the president of the whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it Utani? Is that right, the name of the corporation? I, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, he's good, uh, but Dave Batista in a small role is really good. Yeah, it's a good opening scene, though. Um, the woman, I can't remember her name, that plays, uh, Gosling's, like, holographic girlfriend, kind of, does a really good job. Um, yeah, just good mix of, like, high-minded philosophy and, you know, like, straight action and a nice mystery to it. You know, some good, like tense like chase sequences and I don't know um did you know Harrison Ford was going to be in it before yeah that was actually spoiled for me Mm -hmm. so but I loved Blade Runner as a kid the original Blade Runner actually one of my my first comic books was a Marvel adaptation of Mm -hmm. Blade Runner so I knew the story before I'd ever even seen the movie um and then as like an early late childhood early teens maybe saw it for the first time and watched it a few times the the different versions of it um, so whenever I like anticipated a movie that much, I try to keep myself spoiler free. Yeah. Um, I can't remember how I found out, but I like I, I saw something that didn't, spoiled. Didn't they put it in the trailer or like hint at it? Maybe on the poster. Maybe yeah. I something, can't remember something like that, or like they used his voice in the trailer. Yeah, that or might be. Like it that. was something where it was unavoidable. Yeah. Like I wasn't trying to be spoiled, and then there it was. Um, still surprising when it happens like when that reveal yes. comes yeah. um much earlier in the movie than i kind of expected it to happen hmm. and much more i mean i know it happens whatever like more than halfway through yeah. but i really thought that his role would be incredibly minor and it would more just be like a cameo as a wink and a nod to the original right um but pretty impressed with the way they integrated his story into the overall story that they were telling and they made it feel it didn't feel forced, and it didn't feel... Like, I don't like when movies are too, like, precious about 
I don't know, like the things they're referencing, like their pop culture references, or when they're too reverential to source material. So I thought it was kind of nice the way that they'd aged him emotionally. You know, he's still the same character, but like different. Yeah. Um, and just really incorporated it well, like into the overall story. And, you know, leads into some really great scenes, especially when <clears throat> he's in the, you know, he's been captured by the replicant, like, bodyguard assassin whatever mm -hmm. she is and they're having that fight and it's raining you know they're down in like whatever that is like the aqueduct or whatever and it's just an amazing scene but um yeah really i don't know yeah i was i, I was impressed that um they, they certainly get allow ford to shine in the introduction to that character yeah but he doesn't end up like showing the scene scenery or um dominating yeah he definitely doesn't overshadow the story he yeah. just like is naturally woven into the story where yeah. it feels it feels purposeful, so... Right. Um, I was... I mean, I, I had no idea what to expect from this movie, honestly. Um, I kind of... Like, again, I really was excited to see it, but I was also kind of afraid that it would be just terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so, incredibly, like, pleasantly surprised coming out of it just with how much I enjoyed it and, you know, how... Honestly, I feel like it's a better movie than the first movie. I think it's a tighter movie, and I think that it... I think it tells its story in a way that it's more concrete in what's happening in it. Like, there's less less assumption on your part. Not that I even mind, like, movies where you have to make assumption. But, um, yeah, I mean, really, really surprised and really happy with it when I saw it. Just a quick note, everyone. If you end up hearing some yapping in the background, that is not me having a conniption while Frank talks. That's my dog um, barking in the background. Um, what about the pacing of the movie? Um, there, there, there is some criticism that I found as high as the movie was rating about uh, one, the length of the movie, and two, some of the pacing elements of it feeling a little slow, like in the first half of the movie, especially. I think any time that okay, so I have two answers maybe to that question. I think anytime you have a movie that goes over two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, I think that people are going to feel like there's pacing issues because that's a lot of time to fill on the screen. Um, I also think that you're reintroducing a world where the assumption is, as the viewer, you already know things about that world, <clears throat> but they don't do it in a way where they're not holding your hand through describing the technology or the state of like that specific universe because again I don't it's not it's not condescending to you you know it's assuming yeah. that you understand already but you still have to introduce certain elements right mm -hmm. so when you have it's it's not a traditional science fiction movie in the sense that it's not like the premise is much more complicated than just, you know, there's an alien from outer space or there's a spaceship on, like, a mission or something, which a lot of science fiction is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Terminator is very easy to introduce and, like, get rolling because it's such a simple conceit, right? Like, it's, even though it's complex with, like, time travel and stuff, like, it's one character coming from the future. And in Blade Runner, you know, you're setting up this, like, philosophical quandary of this machine as to whether, like, what's... Like, what's the meaning of existence? Like, what constitutes, you know, like, being, like, an, an entity on your own and not just, like, a, like a collection of parts? Mm -hmm. And I think that in order to make... In order to invest you in Gosling's character, which I think the movie does really well, like, mm -hmm. I think it has to build 
slowly so that you kind of see him like live a life before it like pushes him into the action. And I, I think that I think if you if you jump from the Batista scene, like the fight in the beginning, and you immediately jump into like more action after that, I don't know that you're as invested in Gosling towards the end to really care about what happens to him. And I think yeah. that you genuinely because Harrison's Ford character, you already know, you've already had two plus hours. Right. Like, if you've seen the, the previous movie, to know who that is, you have to build Gosling to the point where you know who he is. And all the things with, you know, the, the toy and his maybe memories and all these other... Like, it's important because it all pays off in the end. It's not just window yeah. dressing. It actually has meaning later in the movie, and it, it makes those scenes more impactful. So, I mean, I... It's always hard for me to say that a movie is poorly paced, even though it does happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I never felt bored or disinterested. Like, my mind wasn't wandering. I wasn't, like, looking around the theater. Um, you know, I mean, I was, like, watching the screen the entire time I was invested in the, yeah. the movie, so... We started Iron Fist season two, and you want to talk? About, I've seen poor pacing in the past couple of days because the first two episodes were painful to sit there through yeah. at an hour each. I wouldn't say that it's poorly paced. There's probably being someone who's sensitive to time. Um, I, I'd say there's maybe like ten minutes somewhere you could probably cut out of Blade Runner, but I I wouldn't know what that ten yeah, minutes is. Yeah, and I like. I mean, I think you can make that argument about any movie that runs sure. that length yeah, of time, right? right? Yeah. Like, there's always something where you could say, okay, like, I didn't really need to see that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my bigger complaints to give that The Dark Knight is, like, there's stuff that I think you sure. cut out of that movie. I mean, you, like, that movie specifically, which is another movie that I kind of considered for this another, list. Right, yeah. Um, the whole, what is it? Like, Korea? Is that where he is? Where he's in, like, rappelling into the tower or, like, ziplining yeah, into China. the tower? He goes to China. I mean, that whole scene, like, I felt sure. when we were watching the movie, like, what's yeah. the point of And we've talked this? about that off, yeah. off air plenty of times, but it could have seriously been almost like a joke shot where you could have dealt with it in 30 seconds sure. rather than spending Or just not even had it because right, sure. it doesn't impact the movie really Exactly. Yeah. Um, but in a movie like this where you're building an entire world for someone to kind of see and, you know, inhabit themselves for close to three hours, I, I mean, I... I think it does it really well. I think that it... Mm -hmm. There's other movies on this list that do similar things, like one specifically that will be later. Um, and maybe does it a little better, which is why it's higher on the list. Yeah. But just in general, like, I was I was engaged in this movie the entire time. And it's it's one of the few movies... And I this is something I say all the time. Um, I love movies that make me realize why I love watching movies. Like, movies where I come out and I feel like it was important that I saw it, or it somehow, like, made me better to have seen it, and I felt that way coming out of Blade Runner. So. Okay, anything that you personally didn't like about the movie? No. Um, it actually handled... Something I hate in, like, dystopian science fiction is... The portrayal of poor people usually mm -hmm. like I find it to be really like either overly sentimental or um, like I always think back to Stargate the Stargate movie yeah. um, with the way they portray like the like the aboriginal race or whatever like I can't mm -hmm. even remember like the premise of that but there's like the what they're not cavemen they're like 
Aborigines, basically, that they encounter. And it's a lot of, oh, here's these dumb, like, technologically backwards, you know, like, playing with stuff and being confused. And I don't know, there's the scenes where they they show, like, when he goes to the factory and there's all the poor people there and they kind of shoot him out of the sky. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually felt like, you know, they might not be as, like, privileged as the people that are living in the cities, but they still felt like real people and it wasn't. Like, it was social commentary without being, like, beating you over the head with the social right, commentary. Right, it wasn't yeah. Yeah, that, it's yeah. Just, it, it, it works as, like, a part of the movie, and then yeah. upon, like, reflection, you know, you can see where they're talking about, I mean, especially in our current, like, climate with the idea of, like, one percenters and, sure. you know, like, the separation of, like, the wealthy from... Well, I see what you mean. I mean, far too often movies portray poor people and they make it a political statement as sure. opposed to allowing it to just be... Something that exists, but could also be seen as social commentary. There's actually there's a really good example of this from from this past year, which is um, Ready Player One, uh-huh. which you know it 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 establishes that these people are all like poor in the beginning, and that their only escape is this virtual world. But it does it in a way that's to me it's just really condescending. It's I mean because in in actuality, like anyone making a movie in Hollywood is living a comfortable lifestyle. Sure. Like there's not you know, a guy that's eating in a soup kitchen that's, you know, directing a film or writing a film. I mean, maybe, like, you know, before, but not at the point where they're actually doing it. And I think sometimes that it's like, there, like, you can feel the disconnect that the person that's creating the art doesn't necessarily understand what it means to, like, not have something. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel that it's that way here. And I feel like there's, even though there's not a whole lot invested in that scene and those characters, like, it still feels, like, real and they have, like, a weight to them, I okay. guess. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm laughing because I was um, just watched a Thirty Rock episode where uh, Tracy realizes he's lost his roots mm-hmm. and goes and tries to find um, poor friends so he can learn what it's like to yeah. be like a regular person again. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there's far too much of that. I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's my problem with movies like Crash. You know where it's yeah, it's so condescending yeah. to be like a normal, like average, like an average you know human being living on this planet and have some rich person from Hollywood like talk down to you about what it means to be yeah yeah I agree I don't see that in this movie whatsoever I think that it's um it's pretty even handed yeah like across the board um allows you to take away what you want from it in terms of those kind of issues sure okay let's go ahead and move on to um number four uh which you have is the devil's rejects directed by Rob Zombie um which is a sequel to House of Thousand Corpses has a 53% 53% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and um, 78% from audience. You know, the, the critic score is not surprising because I feel like... Not surprising at all. I expect it to be lower. Yeah, I feel like any horror that is invested in like graphically showing death is never going to... I mean, 50% is actually really good. Yeah, you know, that's what I thought, yeah. Um, I'm a little surprised by the audience score being... Like in the seventies, I would assume like eighties, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe even higher. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe people that didn't know what they were getting into watching it, or aren't necessarily fans of that genre. That's what I would suspect. Yeah. Um, so, we want to tell them a little bit about the movie. So, like full disclosure, I was a huge White Zombie fan mm-hmm. um, when I was young. Like I still like one of my favorite bands ever. Um, it's like something you have to have to admit, you know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it doesn't really need to be disclosed. Um, 
but so I was always really invested in the idea of Rob Zombie as like a creator because I I really like that music like I like their videos I like the the aesthetic of that band um, and to say that I was disappointed in House of a Thousand Corpses is probably an understatement um, I despise that le- movie. legitimately one of my least favorite movies maybe of the past like 25 years um, one scene that redeems it I think or doesn't redeem it, but is like one scene that actually shows like some talent in him as a director. The rest of it's just like carnival schlock. Um, and I mention that because this movie is really the polar opposite of that. I mean, this yeah. movie is it's restrained in a lot of ways, which is like crazy to say about a movie that's really, you know, it is over the top and it's it's very like graphic and gory and but really has the aesthetic of like a 70s like grindhouse horror movie um you know if it feels like it's invested in his characters um there's no no really redeemable characters in this movie like the the guy that's i guess the protagonist maybe is just as terrible as talking about the sheriff yeah the sheriff um the sheriff's maybe worse than they are I mean, especially towards the end, right. like definitely, just as bad. Sure, like he's he's a murderer and a psychopath himself. Yeah. Um, but does a really good job of, you know, getting like good performances out of um, you know Sid Haig and um, even Sherry Sherry Moon Zombie, who I think is a terrible actress, yeah. like is is somewhat decent in yeah. this movie. Um, Really good set piece, like horror set pieces that feel almost like a like a road movie from the seventies or like eighties. Um, I don't know, like like Midnight Run or something. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's right. got that feeling of, or like even maybe even like Smokey and the Bandit, where it's these people that are kind of like outsider, like they're you know these counterculture figures, yeah. and you kind of forget that they're murderers sometimes until they yeah. go and, like, murder, sure. like, a bunch of people, but... Yeah, there's, like, a Bonnie and Clyde aspect to it, like, yeah. I guess, yeah. Humanizes them, like, there's small scenes, you know, where they're getting ice cream or, you know, that are just completely, like, hu- like small human scenes that could feel like something out of, like, a family drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and very little of the just ridiculous, like, Dr. Satan, I don't know, Right. Like, yeah. that's the elements of House of a Thousand Corpses that I hated the most, which was, it feels like a, a haunted house or a haunted, yeah, hay rock, exactly. a haunted hayride type thing. There was a, um, there's a place around here called Haunted Valley um, that I remember there was a stage piece where it was like a doctor and they had, you know, it was like colored lights and strobe lights and there was this doctor that was operating on this dummy that was a patient and cutting into him. Yeah. And he would like squirt, like, you know, he would uh, take the syringe and like squirt the water on the people standing in front of it. And it was just that kind of schlocky... Um, I mean, you just described House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, hammy type stuff that like I, as a seven-year-old, when you're standing there in front of it, it's like, oh yeah, it's creepy and you run away. But, uh, you know, when you're... When you're older and you're watching it on film, it just looks goofy and stupid. Yeah, and there's none of that in this movie. Like even no, e- even the all. big, the big scenes, if you want to call them that. So, you know, the murder in the roadside motel, um, the shootout in the beginning of the movie, um, the attack when they're in the um, what's his name, uh, 
they're in the whorehouse, yeah, basically, and like they're getting attacked there. Um, yeah, when the bounty hunters come in yeah. to attack them, yeah. All no, that's that's that scene is maybe I the best thing I've seen Rob Zombie put the film in terms of tension. Is, it's really good. is when she's in the bathtub and like they're all like you know I think they're getting high, aren't they? Like or drinking or something like that, or yeah. some of them are passed out, and the and the bounty hunters like uh, slowly come into the house. And creep in and are going to kill all of them. It's the the tension that he's able to build in that scene. Yeah, it's really good. It's really powerful. And I, the performances. There's some really great performances and small roles by, like some iconic you know horror film actors. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that scene particularly. It's it's Diamond Dallas Page and um, what's his name, uh, the guy from. Oh, man, I feel like an idiot. The guy from Machete and... Man, what is his name? The Pockmark? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, damn it. I can't remember. I'll That's terrible. Yeah. We should both remember that. Yeah. I apologize. It's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but, like, they're really good in it. Um, you know, Bill... Danny Trejo. Yeah, Danny Trejo. Uh, Bill, Bill Pardee, right, is the guy that plays um, Sid Haig's brother, the guy that runs the whorehouse. I believe so, yeah. Um, he's really good. Um, the Hills Have Eyes guy... In like that tiny role, mm-hmm. uh, the the chicken fucker thing. Yeah, uh-huh. Just I don't know. I mean, so zombie to me, a lot of times suffers from the same problem as Tarantino without nearly as much talent, which is that he's he's so in love with the things that inspired him to make movies that he can't separate himself from just kind of crafting love letters to those things all the time, and almost in like. An incredibly like reverential way that almost is distracting. Mm-hmm. Like he puts things in that are purposefully meant to remind you of something else. Um, I think Tarantino has the same problem, but Tarantino obviously far more talented of a director, so it's a little easier to overlook sometimes. Sure. Um, but in this movie, it, it really feels like zo- like Rob Zombie like making his own movie, and maybe the only movie he's made that truly feels like it's 100% like his. Um, even though it is like reverential to other things, it's it's more subtle. And it's um, in the way that it kind of... Like, like, you can tell that he loves Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's specifically the scene in the, you know, the roadside motel where they cut off, um, you know, the guy's face and make his wife wear it. Right. Very much, you know, like an ode to Texas Chainsaw. Sure. But not done in any way, shape, or form where you would feel like that's what you were watching. Like, you right. you feel the reference, but it doesn't feel like a forced reference. Yeah. Um, yeah, just really, I don't know. Yeah, that scene is the only part where I feel like the, um, the, uh, the House of a Thousand Corpses interjects itself as that damn scene where she runs out into the road and gets hit by the truck. Like, yeah, you, and we've, we've argued about that. And you that. know that's like the only thing about this movie that I really dislike <laughs> is that is that sequence is it just seemed completely over the top and unnecessary like for that to happen. <clears throat> yeah, I and I, the, so my favorite part of this movie is um, is Bill Mosley as uh, Otis Driftwood. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe one of the most like menacing performances like a guy that's completely completely loyal to his family but also completely disgusted with how dumb they are sometimes and the bad decisions they make and 
you feel like if Otis was just left to his own devices, he could go forever without being caught, but kind of saddled with, you know, the, I don't know, the hedonistic, like, desires of, of, um, Sid Haig's character and Sherry, Sherry Moon Zombie's character, uh, mm-hmm. Captain, Captain Spaulding and Baby or whatever. Um, one of my favorite scenes in horror mo- in a horror movie from maybe ever, but definitely over the past like like twenty some years, where uh, where Otis takes the husband from um, you know from the motel and they take him out to dig up the guns, like they drive the van out to this abandoned area so they can dig up their weapons, and the guy tries to fight him off and Otis like overpowers him and he's standing over him and Zombie shoots the scene with like you know, this, like, almost unnaturally blue sky and, like, you can feel, like, the heat of the desert and, you know, Otis is looking down on him and his face is, like, grimy and, like, bl- like bloody and his hair's like, stringy and dirty and he says, you know, I'm the devil and I come to do the devil's work and it's just, it's it's just such a great, the way he delivers that line is amazing, the way yeah. the scene is presented is amazing and it's really a shame because, again, like, I like Rob Zombie as a director mostly, like, I don't know that he has any other movie that comes close to this in terms of being, like, a complete film. But there's there's good things you can take from his Halloween um, reboot. Like, there's some decent stuff in that. Um, Lords of Salem, there's some okay things. Uh, 31, maybe it's called, or whatever, that, that's got, like, some okay scenes in it. But they all kind of fall apart at certain points. But this movie, from start to finish, I think is really tight and... It's the best thing I've seen him do. Yeah, it, it ends really well. Like it's it's got a really good ending that kind of leaves you. Like maybe they're all dead or maybe they're not dead, and I guess now you know that they're not dead because there's a sequel coming out. But at the time, like it was, it was abstract enough where you can kind of draw your own conclusions and right. Yeah, yeah. I think the sheriff probably might be the best part of it to me. Is I I love that story arc of the um. The righteous man, you know, believing what he's supposed to do, and there's certainly religious commentary there, yeah. is that he believes he's doing God's work, and he becomes just as much of a monster as, um, as the, as the evil he's chasing. And I, I, I really like that element of the movie, um, because it's not a slow descent; it's actually pretty quick. Uh, pretty, pretty quick. Well, sure. kind of turns into that, but I mean, he's also been chasing him for a long time. Like that family they murdered his brother, and sure. I mean, For Forsyth does a really good job. Yeah, and that's I really like Forsyth's performance in that. Um, yeah, his scene with uh, what's her name, um, Leslie Easterbrook or whatever, when he's like basically torturing her, like trying to do the the bad cop thing to her, and she's not breaking, and he resorts to basically murdering her. You know, just because she won't like give him what he wants. I mean, it, it's a really tense scene, and I mean, she's really hammy in it. The you're gonna burn in hell or whatever thing. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's appropriate in that scene, and it's even more chilling. Like when he goes in there and kind of like just stabs her to death. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. No, I. Um, yeah, it's 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 a great movie. I think that if you enjoy horror movies, like it's definitely worth watching. Out of all the movies on this list, it's 100% the movie that is the best, like, the sequel that so, like, far surpasses the source material, mm-hmm. um, while still being, like, 100% a true sequel to the movie that came before it. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, all the criticism, I think you probably, to some degree, already discussed here, which was that, um, you know, they're 
ugly, disgusting people, disgusting behavior. Zombie has a sick imagination. Yeah. I mean, that we've talked about that on a number of podcasts now about critics. It's always it's always amazing to me when someone who is paid professionally to like critique art doesn't understand that not everything in the world is you know like good like you're right. not always if if you can't if you can't show through art the bad side of life so that someone can like see these awful things in a disconnected way where it's not something like actively affecting their life I mean, that's what art does. Art holds up, you know, like a mirror to society. So, there are terrible people. And even though these are caricatures, you know, zombie, I don't know, like, how high-minded he is about, like, philosophically what he's doing, but he's showing you, you know, all these terrible people, and everyone gets their just desserts in a lot of ways. Like, everyone gets their comeuppance. There's, There's definitely an aspect of the morality play in his stuff, and... I mean, the only true innocence in the whole movie... I guess maybe you could consider the... Like, the rock band, like, somewhat innocent. And they they get murdered. But it's, you know, the mother and her child where they steal her station wagon and, like, they live. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. Right. Okay. Um, No, it's a good movie. I mean, it's not going to be for everybody. So, just being warned about that. But we'll move on to number three. Uh, a little bit of safer movie here, mm. uh, which is Before Sunset, uh, directed by uh, Richard Linkletter, uh, Ladder, and um, starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Uh, 95% from Critics on Rotten Tomatoes uh, came out in 2004, the sequel to Before Sunrise. Um, do you want to go ahead and explain a little bit about the background of the movie and what you liked about it? So, a sequel to, you know, Before Sunrise. Um, that takes place, I guess, ten years after. Is that right? Yeah, it's ten years is the idea. Nine to ten years. Uh, so before sunrise, just a brief summary. You know, Ethan Hawke is a college student on holiday or whatever in Europe. Um, meets Julie Delpy's character over the course of you know one evening. Uh, they spend time together, fall in love with each other, make plans to meet again. Um, what is it in like a year's time maybe in Paris they're going to meet one year later yeah, they're um, or no six. I think it's six months it's supposed well, to meet. so yeah so yeah. some length of time they're supposed right. to meet again so this movie picks up you know literally like the exact amount of time between the first movie's release and the second movie's release uh, Hawk is now a successful writer um, he's doing a book tour in Europe and is in the city where I guess are they're in Paris right Yes. And Delpy comes to, like, watch him talk. Uh, You find out that they never met each other because Delpy's sister got sick, I think. Um, And he actually... Yeah, so her grandmother died. Her grandmother died. And he went there, and she wasn't there. Um, And over the course of, what is the movie, like, 90 minutes long? Yeah. And happening in real time, you know, they reconnect. Um, They realize that they're still in love with each other. Uh, They're both in kind of unsatisfying relationships at the time. Um... And he makes a decision to to stay. Like one of my favorite scenes, I guess, in any romance movie ever, which is the you know you're gonna miss your flight at the end, where like you know that like they're gonna stay together. Yeah. <clears throat> um, really, like the the chemistry between Hawk and Delpy is is pretty amazing. Um, in this movie and in its its sequel, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that why like why I like this one more than Before Midnight, um, but. 
a lot of improvised dialogue. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of real, just like natural dialogue between these two. Um, it feels like, it almost feels like shockingly intimate. Like you really feel like voyeuristic in a lot of ways watching it. Um, and really makes you invested in them as characters because it doesn't feel like you're watching two actors perform. It feels like you're watching two people legitimately interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both incredibly interesting characters, but certainly not perfect. I mean, they have flaws, and um, I always find him to be like a little too uh, conceited and a little too... I always feel like his character jumps to conclusions a little too quick and they're not always the right conclusions. And I feel like she's a little too aloof sometimes and a little too, um, like, high-minded and haughty about things while still being, like, a down-to-earth character. Like, I think there's times where... I also think she's less honest. I think she hides her feelings a lot of times through... in different ways. Yeah, that's true. Where I think he's a tiny, he's more direct, and I think that's part of his arrogance. Yeah, well, he's how direct he is. He's way more raw in his emotional reactions to things. Right. But in a lot of ways, it is like, like you feel like it is just a reaction to a thing and not like a well considered thought. He's just like immediately reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens, like, that's even more apparent in the sequel to this movie, you know, before sure. the end, where you really feel like he's. Number one, achieved like a great manner of success as a writer, and also not really been checked mm-hmm. except by her for like by anybody, right? Um, for years, um, and it's 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 difficult to talk about this movie in a lot of depth because a lot of it really is just two people talking, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's immediately engaging, like I don't know, almost like, sublimely paced in the sense that, like... I mean, because, again, you're watching, like, every moment of an interaction between two people stretched I think the thing that... I think it's the real-time aspect that definitely makes this maybe the best out of all three of them. Yeah. Is where the first one, it spans the course of a night. Before midnight, I think, spans the course of, like, um... It's a... It's like a day and a half, almost, I think, like... Well, so, in Before Midnight, he's dropping his son off in the morning... Right. They drive back. Yeah, it's a day. They okay. have lunch. Yeah. Then at dinner, they go to the hotel. It's 12 hours, like the first yeah. one, I guess, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit more, 12 hours. But definitely, but, um, like, there's distinct yeah. scenes. Sure. Whereas this is... This is, right, it's just their meeting and just the 95 minutes of that yeah. movie. And this this almost could be, like, a filming of a, of a stage play, really. In the sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what is the strength of this one, though. Yeah. Is it's because it's so immediate and it's so... You know, and you're watching them in real time, and I, I think the pacing, it's well paced, but I think the pacing doesn't even matter at that point because of the real time aspect. Yeah, it's true. It's like you're so engaged in like them meeting the conversation and the time constriction of him having to leave. Yeah. I, I think like keeps putting this like, you know, um, there's, there's, he's putting this, tur- tur- right, there's an urgency yeah. to it. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's, it, it's definitely a very immediate movie where you feel. Yeah. You feel just as driven as they are to kind of find out, like, what happens and where it's going to go. Whereas the other two movies, the first movie is, like, all endless possibilities, and the second movie is kind of, like, impending dread, like, kind of feeling like you're watching something fall apart. Whereas this one is a mixture of those things. Like, you still feel, like, the optimism 
of the maybe this is going to work, but then it's like tethered more. It's not like boundless youth or whatever. It's like tethered by real responsibilities and you know a, a wife and a child on one side and. She has a boyfriend, I think, but she's also, like, really involved in the... Or she maybe she just broke up with, like, the guy. I, I can't remember specifically, like, her... No, she, she's she's with somebody, but she also doesn't make it seem like it's a very serious yeah. thing. Um, that, that, that's 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 one of the parts where I think, like, she's a little bit... Dishonest. Dishonest. Yeah. Is that she, um, she underplays that whole thing where he's very honest about, like, his situation. Um... She also lies to him about not remembering them having sex. Like, uh, there, there's a lot of dishonesty in that character that, like... And it's not even a malicious dishonesty. Yeah, it's, it's her really, like, playing with his ego in a lot of ways. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. I, I mean, it's also things that she just doesn't want to... She she can compartmentalize much better than he can. I yeah, mean. he cannot compartmentalize. Right, yeah, at all. Um, and, she can, and she can, and I think that kind of comes across as dishonest sometimes. It's funny, too, because... <clears throat> There are two actors that I don't necessarily think of as being good actors. So, like, I don't really have a lot of fondness for Julie Delpy overall. And I think Ethan Hawke has made some really bad decisions sure. in his career. But in these three movies, and maybe it's Linkletter that brings it out of them, or maybe it's just, like, their investment in the characters. Yeah. Really, I, I, like, I think that there's some version of themselves. Yeah. But it really is, like, an elevation of them as actors to something greater, I think, than what they're capable of. Absolutely. Like, apart or with other directors. Yeah. Um, I really like Richard Linkletter a lot, even though I don't like all of his movies necessarily. Yeah. Um, but I find him to be, like, in, in my mind, he's the natural successor to, like, John Cassavetes, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, like, this modern, modern American storyteller, really, that could tell, can make a movie that's just about people doing, like, real things without any kind of over like driving plot there's no i don't know like it it doesn't need to have a backdrop to be interesting like it really is just an examination like even um even dazed and confused which is like maybe to me his most ambitious or like far-ranging movie um still it's just very intimate you know stories about people doing things that real people do you know and living real lives and this is like maybe the most like crystal encapsulation of that idea where it's because it is real time and because it really is just about two people exploring like rekindling a romance that wasn't even really a romance it was just like a brief encounter or whatever um it's just it's it's amazing how engaging and how you know relevant it feels whenever you watch it especially if you've ever been in love with somebody or felt like you know you were in love and you lost like you missed an opportunity maybe you have regrets it I don't know, it's it's pretty pretty profoundly moving in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, this is ninety five percent. There's not a lot of criticism. If there's criticism, like uh, for instance, Joe Morgan Stern, the Wall Street Journal, um, said described it as a great deal of slow walking um, and talking about love, married life, and sex, and it's like he's minimizing the movie. Yeah. In some ways, that that seemed to be like the most common thing that audience members or critics had to say is they just thought it was it's the old trope of it being boring, and that's yeah. the best people can really uh, come up with. Um, I can see that. I mean, I can see certain people like looking at this movie and thinking, "Oh, that's really boring." But it's um, if if you really like characters, uh, and like kind of like seeing the internal life of a character demonstrated through dialogue. Yeah. 
It's, I mean, and and you'll really like this movie a lot. I mean, I don't understand. So, I don't understand how someone could be bored, maybe. I mean, unless, mm-hmm. like, you're just all id and you have to have, like, explosions or, like, guns or something all the time. Oh, I think that's exactly, I mean, maybe what, if, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Maybe if, like, Con Air is your idea of, like, the height. Yeah. Of cinematic like perfection, then maybe you. I think I know people that might not like this movie. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I guess maybe I can't fathom it. Yeah. And I'm not always interested in like I. I don't know. Like I can get bored in movies too, but I just I find this movie to have such a. Such an immediacy to like every scene. As long as you're invested in those characters, so maybe if you had never seen the first movie. Maybe then oh, yeah. it's well, not obviously not right, interesting, yeah. or maybe you can't. <laughs> no, you definitely want to see the first movie before you ever watch this. You really like if if you've never seen any of these movies, so it's you know it's uh, before sunset, before sunrise, and or before sunrise, before sunset, and then before midnight. You really should try and watch them like in close proximity mm-hmm. to each other, even though. I can say from personal experience, like having lived through it, like watching them when they came out is pretty pretty amazing to see like that amount of dedication on like these three like you know creators parts to like tell this story stretch over what is it like 25 years i guess yeah. right yeah 94 94 to yeah. 2000 or 95 something like that 2015 yeah. so 20 years i guess yeah still pretty incredible that they would do that yeah so. i mean basically they're picking them up every 10 years roughly yeah. so um, I don't. I don't have any criticism of it except for like personal feelings towards the characters themselves. But it's right. not a criticism. It's right, just yeah. like the movie affected me in that way. Sure. Um, what did you think about Before Midnight overall? Just briefly. <clears throat> um, I like Before Midnight, but I like both of them so much less. And I think there's way too much of other characters in Before Midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not interested in the Greek family that they're hanging out with. I'm not interested in their kids. I'm not interested in, like, that whole dinner scene. The scene on, like, the veranda where they're looking out over the Mediterranean or whatever, talking about, like, his ideas for books. Yeah. None of those scenes are interesting because I just want to see the two of them, like, interact with each other. And by the time the two of them are interacting, they're kind of both so loathsome in some ways that I don't even want to see it anymore. Like, I just want them to... Yeah, it turned into, like, the, the, the stuff with the Greek family turned into, like, the John Irving bullshit that I dislike and talk about all the time, where it's, like, it, it had to turn this conversation of the battle of the sexes, yeah. and this conversation about sex, and it's, like, I just find that whole, like, white middle class idea of, like, you know, sex being everything to couples in their 40s, like, um... So boring. Like, you know, I, I just find it so dull. When and, and But the interesting thing, I think, is when you really get down to it in the second half of that movie, is while they're sitting there having this conversation as if sex is everything, when really the nitty-gritty... When they get down to the nitty-gritty of the problems in their relationship, sex has nothing to do with it. Yeah, because they're both, they're both okay with that. It's right. The they're fine that, in that area. It's actually the... The fact that he can't... He can't grow up ultimately, and she's kind of grown up, like, well beyond what he can be. That's interesting. We'd have, I to, think talk about, we'd have to talk about that yeah. more. Like, I, I, I see what you mean by that. And the, he's, he's an absolute idiot in that movie. Like, I hate his character in that movie. And I'm not very fond of her either, but yeah. I can kind of understand her. 
Yeah. Because she she's built a life and he just wants to throw it away because like for 10 minutes he feels bad that he hasn't been a good dad to his kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I like, look, I completely understand like that aspect yeah. of it. And that might be my favorite scene in the movie is the first 10 minutes where it's just mm-hmm. him and his kid like interacting. Uh, I, yeah, this is probably too long of a conversation us to have, but I, I, I think there's just as many problems with the way she handles everything as what he does. And, yeah, so uh, even that specific scene you're talking about where he kind of admits that he wanted to move, um, and he's been thinking that all day. But she gives him so many outs and so many hints that it's not something she wants to talk about, and he's way too obtuse to ever take those hints. Sure. No, I agree. Because he still is just a 21-year-old kid. Yeah, but that's, and that's what I find fascinating about all these movies is that they're still... They're still the same, like, you know, 18, 20-year-olds, whatever they yeah, were, like, true. in that original movie. They're just older now, but the, the, it's still there inside of them, and they still make the same mistakes. And it's the very thing that brought them together is actually the very thing that could tear them apart. And like, it, I mean, look, it, it still is a great movie. And sure, absolutely. incredibly yeah. effective because... I agree with the Greek stuff, definitely, though. Yeah, like, like that, that's the only thing, is it's, it's that 25 minutes, 30 minutes in the first third of the movie that I just don't... I have no care for whatsoever. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it twice. Like, I watched it several years ago, and then I watched it again like when we started talking about this list just because I wanted to kind of refresh myself mm-hmm. on it. But, um, like, I just I find myself wanting to stop watching the movie at that point. And that's, yeah. it's pretty rare when I'm watching a movie where I think, like, all right, like, I'm, I'm done with mm-hmm. this movie. Right. Um, there's actually only maybe, like, two movies I've ever walked out of in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heaven's Prisoners and... Really? Yeah, man. Heaven's Prisoner's a bad movie. No, it's real bad. Yeah. It's awful. Oh, I got up and left. We made, we Bloodstone and I just made fun of him. I couldn't. You like, couldn't? It, it gave me a really bad headache. Oh, okay. And same thing with um, Return of the King. Like, I walked out of Return of the King. Yeah, I still... I remember you telling me It took story. me, like, eight years to see the ending of Return yeah, of the King, yeah. I think. Like, I, I, I had to go out and throw up yeah. in a trash can, like, watching Return of the King. Yeah, The Abyss, I left not because I walked out on it, but because, like, I was, like, eight or seven or eight years old, and I was tired, and they were trying to see, like, some kind of, like, 10 o'clock showing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the only movie I walked out on was um, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Oh, uh, Actually, kind of like stop from my mom. Mm, yeah. I, I I don't. It's probably a really terrible movie, but I sure, have, yeah. I have some fond memories of that movie. Yeah, and I was like thirteen, and I was like, you know what? I can't deal with this movie. Um, this is not funny. No, Heaven's Prisoners. Like Heaven's Prisoners, bad movie. Yeah. Really, like I just we 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 had gone to see it. We we had gone to watch it because. Oh, what is her name? Terry Hatcher. Yeah, Terry Hatcher was supposed to be like naked in that's it. That's why every per every boy in their teens want to go see that. So movie. number one, that's incredibly disappointing. And then number two, it's just like You mean she was incredibly disappointing when Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, right. that, that yes. whole scene just, just bad. <laughs> yeah, yes. Like from like a like a young Yes like sixteen year year old. I was, like, I think I was you were a little you were you were a little older than me. Yeah, I was sixteen. But just such a bad movie. Like so terribly plotted and the performances sure. were awful sure. and Oh my god! It's just it's it's all beige yeah. and like brown. It, oh, yeah. it's terrible! Yeah. Don't ever go see Heaven's Heaven's Prisoners. Yeah, no, it's it's a really bad movie. Yeah. But any, any final thoughts thoughts on these movies? I mean, it's fine. I think that we talked about um, before midnight just because I can't see that coming up on a list probably no. ever. Yeah, I don't know so. where it would be. Um, no, just if I think that if you love the act of like watching someone become another character. I think that all three of those movies are are pretty essential. Yeah. Absolutely um, agree. 
But this one more than the other. Best roles they're probably ever going to have in their life. Yeah, is is really like one of the most masterful masterful portrayals of a character on screen that actually makes you feel like you're watching a real human being. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and move on. Okay. Okay. So we have next number two is Mad Max Fury Road. 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. You want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you liked about it? So really kind of a, more of like maybe a soft reboot than a sequel um, to the Mad Max series. Um, same universe, uh, different different principal character and Tom Hardy playing the Mad Max character as opposed to Mel Gibson. Um, post-apocalyptic world where, what is the story? It's like a, like, the, like a gas crisis combined with a possible like nuclear holocaust like elsewhere in the world has left Australia like desolate basically. <clears throat> um, Max is captured by this this band, like, cult, kind of, um, led by this guy named Morton Joe, um, who's, like, a demagogue, you know, controlling, like, the water flow and, like, the resources that, that keeps this, this group of people, like, enthralled to him. Um, Max is taken prisoner. Uh, his blood is used to, I guess, like, fuel the blood of one of the drivers, um, like, through transfusions to, like, keep him like alive and Charlize Theron um, plays Furiosa who's one of more Jews I can't remember what they call them like lieutenants or whatever um, and then it's basically just a chase movie at that point um, both a chase movie away from that place to like this supposed oasis that they're going to and then when the oasis doesn't exist like kind of a chase movie back um, to the you know the, the citadel um Maybe my favorite action movie of all time. Um, I'm not a huge fan when a series that the the Mad the original Mad Max trilogy trilogy is kind of like a loose trilogy in the sense that even though the Mel Gibson character you know is the same in each one and there's other characters that kind of like recur, um, they're not distinctly connected to each other. I mean, they're really just kind of like stories told in the same universe, so they almost feel more like like folktales, kind of, of this world. Um, and in that respect, I, I think that's why it doesn't bother me that it's a different actor playing the same character. Um, plus, Tom Hardy is is fantastic in it. Um, almost nonstop action from start to finish. Um, some of the most amazing chase sequences, like car combat um the design of the cars the practical effects i mean i think the movie's budget was like a hundred and some million dollars so pretty high budget for you know what is in essence like just a genre film but amazing stunts um the stakes feel really high you know with them trying to steal so furious is trying to transport the brides of a Morton Joe who are kind of just like baby factories for him almost, um, trying to save them and get them to this place where this mythical place that she comes from, where like these women like kind of run this oasis and it turns out that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, beautiful visuals. Like the, the cinematography is, I don't know, it, like mind blowing sometimes like the colors in that movie are amazing. And 
like there's I can't what do they call it the chrome version or whatever that's in black and white. Yeah, I haven't seen that. That's yet. just as impressive somehow. Like even though all the colors of that movie are when like the first time I saw it, like, I was really blown away just by how how beautiful it is, considering it's all about like smoke and dust and dirt and blood and oil and whatever and seeing it in black and white is just as impressive. Um George Miller's best movie, it's it's in my opinion the best Mad Max movie. Um, I don't know, not, like, no, I don't know. It's very rare when I come out of a movie and immediately want to turn back around and go see it again. Um, and, like, I was so energized coming out of that movie when we saw it. I mean, we, we went to see it, I think, opening weekend, and it was, like, a matinee show, so, like, a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it was. Um, and I just... So, I don't know. Like, it, it made me love the idea of seeing movies. And movies like that, like, are really important to me. They're, it's really special when a movie makes you feel that way. And, you know, in the same way that, that Blade Runner, I felt, was like a loving homage to, <clears throat> you know, the earlier film, but is like a direct sequel. This is sort of the opposite in the sense that it's the same director the same universe, but not really a direct sequel, even though it is kind of a, like, it's a sequel in the sense that the characters' adventures are continuing in this world that has degraded more since the end of um, Thunderdome. But, I don't know, just one of, definitely one of my favorite movies of the past probably 30 years, I would say, and maybe even one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and easily my favorite post-apocalyptic movie, which is a genre that I really, I really like a lot, but can be done really poorly. But this one is just, um, perfect in, in almost every way. Yeah, I think I come at it from a slightly different perspective than you do in that I liked it a lot when we came out of the theater and I still like it, but I also didn't have the desire to go watch it again. I haven't seen it since. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, like, in my entire life. That's I think the experience itself was enough for me. I really enjoyed it. It's one of the more intense visual experiences I've ever had, like, in the theater. Yeah. Um, because, like you said, the cinematography is amazing, the color is amazing, the sound is amazing in it. Like, I mean, the, the sound's really underrated, I think, in that movie. Like, from just a sound production standpoint, like, it's just constantly, like, in your face, like, yeah. the whole time. But, um, I also think there's really good subtle characterization in that um, with both Max and Furiosa sure. that's not done through dialogue. It's done through small moments and mannerisms, and um, I think all that's good, really good, um, well done, and I prefer that over, like, beating you over the head, obviously. Why Why do you feel like you would never want to watch it again? Um, I don't think I need to. Hmm. Like, I think... I don't think I'm going to gain... I'm not going to gain anything more from watching it again. Like, there's nothing... I think what I do is I take things from movies that I can take from them, and I think I took everything from that one experience that I can take from it. So... And I think there's movies that I have to rewatch multiple times to take everything I can away from it. And I would be watching it just to veg out and just enjoy a movie and have, like, that good experience again. And I don't know if... I don't have that in me more to just to just do that. 
So it's interesting because I I don't tend to watch modern movies repeatedly all that much. Like there's very few movies. Um, some of the movies on this list I've seen multiple times. Actually, all the movies on this list I've seen multiple times. But for the most part, with movies now, like I, I watch them once and I enjoy them, and then that's enough. Yeah. Um, I've seen this movie, and this is 2015, right? Mm-hmm. This movie came out. I've seen this movie five times, I think, yeah. in that time, <clears throat> and enjoyed it just as much every time and maybe even more um especially watching the chrome version was really blown away by how beautiful it is in black and white and how well it works yeah. um i think mostly because it is a lot of practical effects like there's very little cgi in the movie yeah um i i love the fact that it it, it is in your face but there's so many moments where there's really wide shots where the mm-hmm. camera's removed from the action and you're seeing it especially early on when the the convoy is kind of like going across the desert and it's showing you like all the different True. you know like vehicles coming at each other um so it can like have these quiet moments where it pulls back and then immediately like will thrust you back into the middle of the action and it feels it's one of the most visceral movies I've ever yes, seen. Where like absolutely. you absolutely feel like you're in the middle of this chaos, kind mm-hmm. of. But it's so well filmed and so deliberate everything that he does that it never feels out of control. Like the chaos feels purposeful, I guess, and not just one of my complaints to talk about another series that has like multiple sequels is in the Bourne movies, right? Like, there will be fight scenes in the Bourne movies, but they're so fast and so chaotic that you never... A lot of times you don't get a good sense of what you're seeing. Like, you know that you're seeing people fight each other, but there's no... It's just, like, like this hyperkinetic, like, movement and stuff. And I think you always have an absolutely clear idea of what you're seeing in Fury Road. Like, you... Mm -hmm always know exactly what's happening and what's occurring. And even though it's fast-paced and it's frantic, it's also... I mean, like, you can tell that he just... Like, that Miller loves the story that he's telling and loves, like, everything about making this movie. Um, you know, and I, I grew up with the, the Mad Max series being, like... To me, as, as a child and, like, a teenager, next to, to Star Wars and Indiana Jones is, like... To like one of my, I don't know, like holy trinities, I guess, of, of film from my childhood. <clears throat> and I, like, there's a lot of things that I really like, even about Thunderdome, which is not like a good movie, but is a really fun movie to me to watch. Mm-hmm. And probably the one that, like, I can go back and watch the most outside of Fury Road and, like, just enjoy. True. In the sense that you say, like, just veg out and, like, kind of, yeah. like, not necessarily care about plot holes and ridiculousness <clears throat> and, like, the dialogue, but just kind of enjoy. Um, the spectacle of it. It's the same way I can enjoy Temple of Doom more than I can Raiders of the Lost Ark, even though Raiders is the better movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, Temple of Doom is a lot of fun to watch. Sure, yeah. But Fury Road is so... I don't know. Like, there's such a... For being just, like, what could be dismissed as just an action movie, right? Yeah. Like, just whatever. Like, a, a chase movie or a combat movie or whatever. Like, it feels important to me when I watch it, and it feels like it's it's that genre. Like, there are certain movies that elevate the genre they're in just because of the talent of the director. Um, and I think that this is, this is a prime example of that, where he's... 
like a, a master of this very small genre of films and he's made like the best examples I think of like the post-apocalyptic world and it, it it's watching a real movie by a real director and I, I hate to say it like that because I don't discredit like genre films just because you know they're low budget or they're whatever just meant to titillate but I think that it does such a good job of engaging you and providing that titillation while still being like a pretty meaningful movie like a you know of, of like the basic freedoms of humanity and the idea of the people in charge like controlling the resources to keep like their people down and you know just the the corruption of absolute power in a lot of ways because it's not just a Morton Joe it's the guy that's like in charge of the bullet factory and the guy that's in charge of like the oil town or whatever and they're both despicable humans like it's implied that the guy that's in charge of like gasoline town or whatever is a is a pedophile and a rapist and you know they're just disgusting like examples of humanity um but like beautiful to look at like incredibly visually like stunning sure I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think the only, I think the difference when you said that it feels like an important film to you, I don't think I feel that way. That's interesting. Even though I agree with pretty much everything else you said, it's like I'm, I'm done with it now. And if it, if I see it on television or something like that, I'd probably watch it again. But yeah. I don't, I wouldn't go out of my way necessarily to. But I feel that way about a lot of modern movies though too. Like, um, I mean, I feel like I can. Be- I, there, there's very few. I can't. <laughs> I can't remember the last movie in the last 10 years that I've watched multiple times. I, I just don't... I don't think I have it in me anymore. And... Yeah. Uh, if, unless it's, like, something, like I said, like, it's... it's Yeah, maybe that's the difference. I don't see it as important. Like, uh, enough for me to watch it multiple times. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I can certainly be, like, somewhat, like, coldly analytical about film, but I'm much more driven by emotional reactions mm-hmm. to movies. Um, which is why I can find love for things that you know, like we talked about Devil's Rejects and how, like, it's kind of almost, like, critically panned in the sense that it's, you know, what, around 50% or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I love that movie. You know, that movie, yeah. like... When I saw that movie, I was working for Regal Cinemas at the time, and it was, like, a Monday afternoon or something, and really slow. And I just went in and sat down and, like, watched, like, 15 minutes of it at the beginning. And I had to go back to work, but I was so, like, blown away by those 15 minutes. As soon as I left work, I went to... The theater that's up here by us, um, the one uh, the, where I wasn't working, and immediately just went in and watched it. Um, and I think I made you like come and watch it yes, with me because yeah. um, I liked it so much. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the same thing where it's sort of how I felt about Pulp Fiction when I saw it for the first time, where I felt like I had to become almost like an apostle of the movie, mm-hmm. and I had to convince other people, like almost like evangelically like sing the praises of this movie sure we'll go and see I was the same way with Pulp Fiction and this is one of the few movies since then that I feel Mm -hmm. if I love a movie like a lot of times it's really personal to me and I don't necessarily care if anyone else likes it and I don't really feel like I need to convince other people to see things but this is one of the movies um, where I really felt like I needed to convince other people that you need to go see this movie like it's important that you see it um, it, a, absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time and definitely one of the best like movie going experiences I've ever had especially like the post like the afterglow or whatever of coming out of it where I just felt 
like so energized and so so excited about the fact that like a movie could make me feel that way again. Yeah. When really like usually I come out of theaters and I'm like, nah, you know, that was good. Like I liked it. Um, which is how I feel about like the Marvel movies, which I generally enjoy. Yeah. Um, even stuff this year, like, um, like hereditary, it happened this year where I really enjoyed it and I came out and I felt good about it, but I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to talk anybody into seeing it. Mm -hmm. Um, but this movie, I just wanted like everyone to see. I wanted to share it with as many people as possible. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I, I just don't feel that strongly about it, I guess. So, Which so. is, it's funny because I think you feel that way about TV shows a lot more. Like, I do. That you're... I, I think, and we talk about this, I guess we've talked about it a little bit maybe in the introduction, like, you know, it was the only time we talked about it, but because I stopped watching movies for such a long period of time, I think my interest is one elsewhere, and my time is one elsewhere, yeah. so... I mean, you're talking to a guy who has seen Die Hard over a hundred times, probably in his life. Um, so it's not like I don't re haven't haven't in my past rewatched movies. I mean, I saw Pulp Fiction fourteen times in the theater, um, but I just think it's like things have changed. You really think you've seen Die Hard a hundred times? Yes, because I used to. <laughs> I it became um, like an OCD thing where um, I um, rather than listening to music, I would use it to fall asleep to um at night for like a year of my life so um it's like yippee ki motherfucker was your your lullaby or something uh, pretty yeah uh, so i mean I, i've seen that movie uh, a lot um but yeah i mean i <clears throat> but i just don't think i'm there anymore where it's like i can rewatch things multiple times it's like when we've been doing this, I can rewatch these movies that i haven't seen in 10 15 25 years even yeah. like sometimes and uh, because it's been so long, it is new to me. But the idea of going around, like, re-watching re something within a couple of years. Um, it's like, I know that we have a couple ideas for episodes coming up, like, you know, in the future. And it's like, there's some things that I'm probably going to need to rewatch that are more recent. And it's almost like there's a dread for me. Like, it's like, yeah. uh, not a dread, but like, I don't know, some feeling of ennui in the sense that, like, um, like... God, I don't want to watch this again already. Um, and I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but where I'm really excited to watch movies from that I haven't seen in 20 years, yeah. um, I don't feel that way about modern movies like at all anymore. And I mean, I, like, like I, my time is about my time. Yeah, is devoted to television shows. A, a lot of times, it's devoted to um, video games. Like yeah. you know, but I mean, it's like I think. I think for some reason those have become my forms of release as opposed to movies just because I lost faith in movies in the late 2000s. Um, not that I don't think there's good ones, but I just lost faith in them and that, that's become my form of entertainment. So re-watching movies is difficult for me. Yeah, it's weird because I still... I mean, there's a lot of things... Although I would say I would watch Devil's Rejects again and Before Sunset <laughs> in the number one movie much more than I... Um, yeah would ever sit down and watch uh, either uh, Blade Runner or Fury Road for some reason. Blade Runner, I don't... Blade Runner is something I'll watch again, and I've, I've seen it twice. Um, yeah. I've seen it once since I saw it in the theater um, mm -hmm. its opening weekend. But I I still, like, more than anything... And I, obviously, like, I have a lot of passions. Like, you talk about TV and video games, and I... There's many television series that I really love, you know, and have watched multiple times, like... Both of us have started watching 30 Rock again. I've watched Parks and Recreation a few times, Arrested Development a number of times. Um, I play video games a lot. I still love to read. Like, I still read a lot. But 
there's nothing to me that gives me as much immediate satisfaction as watching a movie. And even a movie that I don't, that doesn't like immediately blow me away. Like maybe it's not a great movie or whatever. There still is a lot that I take out of, um, you know, just the experience of like those 90 to whatever minutes of just being completely like encapsulated in a single world for that period of time. And I think like Fury Road to me is the perfect example of a movie that it's not very long, you know, it's an incredibly singular experience and it's an incredibly complete experience that doesn't shut the door on the idea that there's more to tell in this world, but still leaves you satisfied that you've seen the entirety of this portion of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's actually kind of depressing that, you know, I mean, Miller has the legal troubles with um, Warner Brothers or whoever it is um, in terms of, you know, like filming a sequel to this. I would have loved to have seen the Furiosa spinoff sequel. Um, I would love to see another Tom Hardy Mad Max movie. I guess that none of those things are ever going to happen, but I mean, just like, just like when you look at a painting and you see like a classic painting or like a painting that like speaks to you and you've seen, you know, the artist has controlled like every portion of that canvas to the point where like everything is purposeful and that's kind of how I feel about this movie. And I, I just think that it's, it's like a masterpiece by a guy that is like a really talented artist in his genre, you know, or in his like chosen craft or whatever. And just everything about it is, I don't know. No, I completely agree. And I think, like, uh, another difference probably with the two of us that we'll find, like, as time goes on is uh, you you use the possibly loaded terms of, like, cold and clinical. But, I mean, like, I'm probably more cold and clinical about film than you are. Yeah. Um, you, you do invest maybe a lot more than me. And I can invest at times, but it takes a lot. Um, it's definitely one of the areas uh, in my life that can evoke an immediate emotional reaction in me. Is yeah. And they can. I mean, uh, I... Yeah. I mean, and it's mu- usually much older movies. It's not modern movies. A lot of times they can do it for me, and that's not the reason I think I turned away. But and I, is that his television can do it a lot more for me anymore than movies can. I sort of agree with that. Like, I feel like there's a lot less risk-taking in movies anymore. And, I, you know, we... So we... Like, our formative years, we had the huge, like, indie boom of the early to mid-90s, where it felt like it was just people with all these ideas, like, making exactly what they wanted to make. And, you know, I mean, there's some, like, some failure in there and some stuff that doesn't quite work. But, you know, you you feel like it's these people, like, exploring new territory almost. Yeah. And, like, I agree. Like, there's definitely a period where it's just a lot of really manufactured movies. Like, it's people that all went through the same film schools, all were taught the same techniques, you know. And you can't watch... I can't believe I'm going to reference this movie again. But you can watch, like, Con Air, The Rock, you know, Bad Boys, um, Armageddon. And it doesn't feel like you're watching... There's nothing about those movies that makes them, like, unique. You know, they're all just kind of the same thing. Independence Day, like, all these movies are kind of cut from the same cloth. But in the past, like, decade, I think, honestly, I mean, there's this, there's... um, horror movies in particularly I think have come a long way in that respect where it feels like fresh and exciting and like mm-hmm. it's people it's people trying different things and like exploring different ideas maybe or like old ideas in a different way yeah. 
with a more modern. I. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop after this, but I I, I think that I don't want to say this. I I think that I've been waiting for that boom to to come again because it's like you think it's like it's the 40s, 70s, and 90s is when people start taking real risks, except for the invention of film. But I mean, you think about like when like we had these big jumps. I think a lot of times it's the 40s where they like kind of start changing what film could be in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah. And then the 70s takes a jump, and then the 90s people are experimenting. And I've been waiting for that experimentation to really come back, like, full force, and something new to come about. And I was thinking, well, maybe it'll happen, like, soon, and it's it still hasn't come, and I don't feel it coming. Yeah. And I... It's like... Again, not to use a, uh, seems like every week I'm using a wrestling analogy, but it's like when I started watching pro wrestling like a couple of years ago again, a few, three or four years ago now, it's because I felt that there was a boom period coming. Like I felt that there was something happening there and that is slowly coming to fruition. Like I don't think I was completely incorrect. It's just not where I expected it to be. And... I don't sense that coming with movies. It's just even the indie movies that should be pushing the envelope just doesn't feel like they're doing that. It still feels like a lot of the same safe stuff that are looking to gain Oscars. And maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Well, see, I so I but, would argue that the horror genre specifically and science fiction to a point, which I kind of put you know Fury Road in the science fiction category, they really are, like... I mean, there's some really exciting movies in the past five years. You know, you have It Follows, The Babadook, um, Hereditary, The Witch. The Witch is one of my favorite horror movies, like, ever. I mean, that movie's beautiful. Yeah. Um, just really small, not, like, big budget. They're, they're small stories most times, but there's so much, like, artistry invested in them that it's really exciting to see those movies. Like, yeah. I... I don't know. To me, like, I can always find something I like in in, in most movies. And, like, some movies are, are trash. Sure, but, sure. <clears throat> you know, seeing those movies, and I, I got to see almost all of those movies in the theater. Like, just really, yeah. like, I would come out feeling, like, excited about what's this director going to do next. Sure. Even, even the Evil Dead reboot, which I think is really uneven. Like, I still was excited that this guy... You know, was willing to take chances and willing to like put a different, the same story but kind of a different spin on it. Yeah. And I mean, since we started doing this, and I've been watching a couple more modern movies than I normally do, I'm certainly like I'm excited about the Dune movie that the guy from 2049 is going to do. Yeah. Like, I'm interested in seeing what he can do with sure. that universe. So, I mean, so um, you know, I'm actually interested in you know suddenly where it's like before it's like oh yeah I'll watch the next P.T. Anderson movie but like the one that just came out like on video it's like now I want to see Phantom Threat like I want to sit down and find yeah. time to watch it so I mean I'm slowly kind of getting back into like some of those things but um it's still like I just find I find television and and that's becoming problematic too in some ways like I'm pr the golden age is over certainly in terms of television I think and. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe I'll swing back to movies eventually, but like, it's not right now. And 
I, I again, I think probably comes down to uh, yeah, I, I look at film differently probably for a number of reasons. Yeah, it's interesting because you you look at like the seminal TV shows of the past twenty years or whatever, right. maybe since like the Sopranos and Homicide and The Wire or whatever Deadwood. Yeah. Um, Shield, you know, Breaking Bad. Like, even well, like, so, you look at Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad lasts. What is Breaking Bad? Five seasons. Five seasons, but it's spread over seven years. Yeah, but only time. like not a whole lot of episodes per season. Sure. But still, the entirety of Breaking Bad is such a long period of time to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, like a movie only ever gives you this brief window of time where they have to tell you an entire story, and even when it doesn't work a hundred percent, like. I just love the immediacy of getting, like, the whole finished product in that short period of time. And when people can, when people do it really well, or even when they do it sort of well, but if, like, Baby Driver is a good example of that, where, like, I like that movie, but it's not perfect. But I still like the story that's told in the time. It's good enough. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, but I, that's a different conversation. I don't want to get on Baby Driver, but I, I I understand what you're saying. I, I, I just like that. I like that long build of characterization that you can see over time, and I feel that like I used to get that in subtle ways. It's like you think about we talked about Chinatown like a few weeks ago, and you think about the way that the, uh, Robert Town can craft the Jake Giddis character, and 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 the Noah Cross character, and all the and Mulray and all them, and you know in. 30 minutes give you everything that you need to know about those characters and have them f- almost fully realized through little pieces of dialogue, mannerisms, like the way they react to certain situations. And it's like, I don't think a lot of screenwriters exist anymore that understand how to do that. It's either going to be in your face, it's not going to be subtle, if they can actually craft the character appropriately at all. And because the and it's like to me a lot of it comes down to characterization probably where I don't feel like I'm actually getting a full story with fully realized characters I'm getting a partial story it's the same I would argue the same thing about like you know uh, Doctor Who like especially the Matt Smith years even though I enjoyed a lot of that stuff it's like I Wesley used to say it's like he felt like he was getting half episodes and I completely agree with that and I never really felt like that character was fleshed out like that version of the Doctor was fleshed out and it's like I see that in a lot of things, like, and I see it in a lot of movies anymore, and I think that's part of my problem with like watching like modern movies, especially indie ones. So to bring it back into the context of you know this list, yeah. like I, I would argue that Fury Road does exactly what you just said. I mean, I think yeah. that I, I'm not denying that it in, does. In the context of the first 20 minutes of that movie, you learn who Max Absolutely. is, who Furios is, who Nix is, who Immortan Joe is, just through Absolutely. small interactions, and you know, I mean, it's. For being an action movie, there's such a large depth to each of those characters that's mm-hmm. meaningful. Sure. So that you're we're not we're not we're not debating that aspect. Yeah. It's just to you you like you you hold it in like much higher esteem than I do, even though I think I don't disagree with you with its placement on this list. I just don't have the desire yeah. to like sit down and watch it again. That's it's just it's just the, I think it's just a difference in the way I live my life now or something. Like I just don't I just don't have the urge to do things like that. Um, one complaint about this movie, since mm-hmm. I haven't really complained about any of these movies yeah. yet, the nuclear s- electromagnetic storm sequence mm. is really cheesy when you see it, like, in its original, like, format. Amazing in black and white. Like, it works so much better in the chrome version of it. Um, but 
not that I, it even bothers me, and I still think it's a really good sequence, but it just feels... It's like because everything else is practical effects, like having that obvious CGI sequence, it just makes it kind of... It's a, it's a jarring sequence, even though it only lasts for a couple minutes. Yeah, I can see that. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, there's nothing to talk about in terms of criticism. There was one negative um, top critic review, and the person said it was boring. And I, I don't even think that's worth talking yeah, about because it's a really stupid complaint crazy. considering this 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 movie. If anything, it's not boring. It's the one thing it's not. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we move on to number one, I just want to say that um, uh, our friends um, Heaster and Bloodstone and Ryan, um, all your posts about exotic cars are um, interfering with my ability to concentrate on this podcast, and I hate all of you. Um, so let's go ahead and move on to number one. Um, you have, um, this is probably controversial, uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 um, is your number one um, sequel of the 2000s. Before you get into talking about the movie a little bit, um, do you just want to kind of, I, I'm, I'm assuming the criticism of this would possibly be is should they be counted as separate movies or should they can't be counted as one movies? And I think you probably wrestled with this in your head. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I just didn't care. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's obviously just a continuation of the first movie and only split up because of the length. But at the same time, I think that it, I think that the first, the first movie builds to, to a point. Like, it's it's her, like, becoming herself again, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then the second movie is her, like, truly enacting her revenge and completing her quest from the first movie. There's different themes in the two. Yeah, and it's also... It's a lot more personal of a movie, but in, like, a different way. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's a very intimate movie. Which I don't really find Tarantino to be like an intimate director, but I think there's a lot of, especially the last third of the movie where it's really just her and Bill and their interactions is incredibly, like incredibly private moments between the two of them. And it, it it feels like the pay, like your investment is paid off in whatever the five hours prior that you've watched, you know, of both of the films. Um, It's a revenge movie at heart. I mean, it's basically like the classic revenge story of the lover, the lover scorned kind of, and you know, her child has been stolen and she's coming back to, to gain revenge against the people that she once like trusted with her life that betrayed her. Um, my favorite Tarantino movie, I think, I don't even think, like I know, I, I like Kill Bill 2 better than any other Tarantino movie. Um, some of his best musical choices, I think in any of his movies. Um, definitely some of his best filmmaking in terms of the cinematography and his his direction. Um, maybe David Carradine's, like... I mean, Carradine is a, a, runs the gamut in terms of, like, the quality of his acting um, from, like, god-awful in the 70s and 80s at times to, like, this is almost sublime. His performance here. He acts to the quality of the material that he's given, I believe. His, but even, like, it's weird, and I don't know how much this is him and how much this is Tarantino, but even, like, his inflection and the way, like, he touches objects and the way that he, 
moves in his clothes is all like there's these small things that are completely nonverbal, um, and you, you kind of see it. It's like he's playing with the flute, you know, and like the way that he like moves the flute around and the way that he's like, you know, spreading mayonnaise on a sandwich or cutting the sandwich and wiping the knife on the bread. I mean, it's just these beautiful small moments that really make you feel like you're watching somebody that could truly be like the most dangerous assassin alive. Right. Um, Obviously, from Tarantino's point of view, like a continuing love letter to Uma Thurman. Although finding out later, like the stuff that happened with her, like hurting herself in the, like driving the car and stuff, is kind of, kind of unsettling. Sure. That he would allow her to put herself in that much danger, I guess. Um, I don't know. Like his use of color in that movie is is brilliant. His switching between black and white at times, um, always breaking the fourth wall. You know, like he can't help himself in that respect. I guess, but. It really works here, like the the shifts in time and the shifts in location and the dialogue, like the scene with Michael Parks towards the end where he's the the old brothel owner. Yeah, Michael um, Parks is really that that yeah. I can't remember what his name is in the movie, like the the character's name, but yes, it's it is incredible. Like, yeah, and funny because like he also plays the sheriff at the um, yeah the shootout at the the wedding chapel. Sure. Whatever he calls it, the San Bernardino, whatever. Massacre. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, pretty sure that's the character from Dusk Dawn too, right? That he's the same character he's playing, that same sheriff. I think so. Yeah. Like it's Tarantino's movies are weird in that respect, yeah. where it's like it's a shared universe, but only in like kind of a philosophical way. Like it's not necessarily a truly shared universe. Um. But th- this is another movie where. Number one, my anticipation for this was maybe it, it might be the most I had anticipated a movie like maybe ever, because um, I loved the first volume of Kill Bill so much, and it was so exciting to know that like within what was it, like six months later, like you got to see the sequel yeah. to it. One hundred percent, like lived up to my expectations and exceeded them. Um, brilliant storytelling in the sense that. You know, you got the stuff with Pai Mei, which is all, like, really fascinating. And, you know, obviously, like, an homage to those, like, 70s and 80s kung fu movies. <clears throat> um, without being, you know, he, he's a stereotype without being a racist stereotype. Mm-hmm. It's more of, like, an homage to a stereotype as opposed to just being, like, cheap cheap racism. Sure. Um, like, incredible... I don't know, female characters, which I think maybe one of Tarantino's strengths is writing like women that actually have impact and meaning in a world, especially where, you know, the Uma character, the bride is like so badass, but not like immortal or invincible. Like you feel that there's, you always feel like there's a threat to her life, but you know, it feels paid off when she succeeds. Sure. Um, the 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 Bud stuff that starts the movie like a Bud's redemption or him trying to redeem himself in some small way, and but still willing to accepting that she deserves revenge, but yeah. also not allowing himself to be killed. That easily. lady deserves revenge, and we deserve to die. Right, and the idea that even though he's like portrayed himself as this guy that's kind of abandoned all of his training and sort of like sunk to his lowest depths, he still kept the sword. You know, he didn't pawn it. Sure. 
Um, but it's like, you know, you think it's like, you know, if, if his, if, if, and, and, he, and he quits after, I think they try to kill Beatrice. Like, if I remember correctly, like, that's kind of when he stops. Um, yeah, that's the impression that you guys And it's you. like, for killing this woman and her child, his penance is to go clean the toilets and take care of the vomit at the strip club at the strip club you know and and kind of be like a handyman or like you know fixer for a bunch of strippers well even I more mean, than that and it's and that's that's his penance is that I, I, I don't know i i mean i assume this is on purpose i actually just thought of this in a lot of ways it kind of harkens to um Carradine's character in kung fu mm. where he's humbled himself sure to the point where he's almost living a zen existence yeah in seemingly like this white trash, like dilapidated trailer in the mm-hmm. middle of the desert, you know, but he is like just kind of like living this Zen existence and like solitude right. is like to pay for what he feels or is his crimes. No, absolutely. And still like the most honorable out yeah. of all of them because he's, um, Vivica Fox, you know, tries to like trick Beatrice and kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, the Daryl Hannah character yeah, yeah, is sure. completely like duplicitous and tries to murder her like in her sure. sleep or in sure. a coma the one time. Yeah. But Bud is even Oren sends like, you know, her eighty eight against right. her. Mm-hmm. But Bud is the only one that's willing to like be honorable and allow her you know, he's not gonna spray her with mace in the eyes, he just wants her to be calm. Right. <clears throat> I don't know. It's um there's a lot that that I think you could talk about with this movie just in terms of small things. Yeah. And again, like Bill telling the story of Paime when they're in like the, like the ruins or whatever, mm-hmm. um, swinging the flute and like the sound there and the way he tells the story and the asso or whatever. Um, the, uh, Japanese assassin when she's in the one scene where the girl with the shot, I'm a surgeon with a shot shotgun mm-hmm. where she finds out that she's pregnant. Like all those like really, the small scenes, the Michael Park scene, you know, where he comes off as, like, this lovable, like, father figure, kind of, but then you see that he's, like, cut the face of a girl that kind of betrayed him or whatever. Um, just really, really well done. Um, it, it feels like, it feels like, like, an, like a fable, almost, in the same way that kind of, you know, like the Sergio Leone, like, westerns sort of feel like a fable. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you can, again, with Tarantino, you can always see, like, what's inspired him, I think. Sure. Um, and it's kung fu movies, and it's westerns, and it's, you know, like, the Italian giallo, like, revenge movies. Like, they, these are the things that, like, you know, Lady Snowblood or, like, Baby Card at the River Sticks, you know, that he, like, pulls, like, his influences from. But because it takes place predominantly in America, and it is against, like, that backdrop of, like, a lot of it's in the Southwest, and it, it feels, I don't know, it, it, it feels like an American fable. And it's, you yeah. know, very, very epic without, like, being epic in, like, the Braveheart, Lord of the Rings, like, huge sweeping shots and large yeah. battles. It's Like you said to start this, there's intimacy to a lot yeah, of yeah, those yeah. scenes that are there. Yeah. Really is most intimate movie, I think. Absolutely. Um I mean, the, the playing uh, Tarantino is like the one thing you don't see is people playing house, and as odd as the circumstances are in the last like you know thirty minutes of that movie, that's what effectively is happening. Yeah, is Beatrice and Bill are playing house with their daughter, 
Um, and it's like that kind of intimacy of making the sandwich is something you don't see in Tarantino. It's like, yeah, I think it's very intimate. Especially because you know that, like, you know that she's going to kill Bill. Yes. I mean, obviously, yeah, right. because of the title sure. of the movie. Yeah. But you still sort of feel like maybe that's not going to happen the yeah. first time you see it for right. a little bit. Um, I, I, I think the movie where he allows the movie to just like grow organically like it he allows the movie just to kind of like happen without his not a lot of like racial epitaphs in the movie which yeah. is I, I honestly maybe not ever like yeah. the n-word isn't used I don't know like I can't think of any instance I don't think that movie there um it's the movie where it it's his best movie because I think it's got the least amount of his fingerprints on it in mm. the sense of like like you can, like he fetishizes things so much I think yeah. in his other movies even movies of his that I love um, and I have not enjoyed his past few movies really but um, like I feel like I feel like they're very egotistical and I think this is his least egotistical movie and I think as a result that these these movies in Jackie Brown maybe like as yeah. a trio are like the least Tarantino movies that yeah. I think are you know I mean Jackie Brown's obvious just because of he's adapting but yeah. um but this one yeah it might be is I mean I I this is definitely his best film I think yeah. overall like it, it, I don't have any problem saying that it's the most loving ode to yeah. his like passion for film while still being I think the best yeah. like story absolutely um and as a sequel. You know, as a continuation of the story of the first one, like it's it's perfect, and it ties up pretty much every single thing that you want to know about that universe. Yeah, it, it completely fulfills the first movie in terms of everything that it sets yeah. up, and you know, it wraps it up nice and tight, and still leaves you a little bit like wondering in the sense of like what happens now to the bride. I sure. Mean, that, um, kind of equivocal scene of her like laughing and crying and there's you know all those feelings that she's you know has about relief and you know what pride and sadness and the lionesses reunited with her cub and yeah. the jungle can sleep in peace or something yeah, like that like, yeah um yeah I, I mean again like I'm very mixed there was a time in my life where I would have told you that Tarantino was probably my favorite director and I've, I've sort of soured on him in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, Death Proof being, like, the first, like, part of that slide. And then mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of Inglorious Bastards or yeah. Hateful Eight. And I, I kind of like Django, but it, it's got some stuff I don't like in it. But as, like, it, Kill Bill 2, like, Volume 2, really is just, like, a masterpiece. Yeah. And I think it's him at his best as a writer. I think it's him at his best as a director. Right. And I think it's him at his, at his best as someone who can get the greatest performances out of, you know, because I mean, in the same way that we, you know, I talked about how Rob Zombie kind of fills his movies with, um, you know, character actors from horror movies, you know, Michael Berryman, whatever, Ken Forey, um, Sid Haig. Sid Haig's in, you know, Kill Bill Volume 2, yeah. ironically. But, um, Tarantino does the same thing. Like he brings back actors that had great roles at one point and have sort of fallen off. And he definitely has done a. He's pretty like amazing at like rejuvenating the careers of actors. Um, 
but this is like to me this is a movie where he does that the most lovingly and does it in a way that allows the actor to be the character as opposed to just being like an extension of his dialogue mm-hmm. which I think sometimes is his problem is that it's always just about getting his words out of somebody's mouth more than it is about getting a performance out of somebody yeah and I think these characters feel the most fleshed out. I think you see that in the Superman speech. Yeah, definitely. Because it's such a Tarantino speech. 100%. Um, but the way, the performance he gets Carradine to give when he's delivering that speech sells it as, you know, it doesn't feel like it's Tarantino trying to force this comic book analogy this pop culture reference into the story, it actually sounds like something Bill would say. Would say this deeply philosophical, right? But incredibly sociopathic man, right? Like this guy that contains multitudes of yeah, being yeah. like the ultimate like philosopher and a stone cold killer, yeah. Like coming up with this analogy that encapsulates his view of himself and his view of the world and his view of her. Yeah, I mean he he sees her. As, I mean he compare basically he's comparing her to Superman. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the amount of respect he has for her is, um, is, is boundless, you know? I mean, um, but another movie that I've seen. Yeah, this one I've seen a, a number of times. I mean, at, at least like four or five times, I think. A couple times in the theater and then a couple times on DVD. And then recently, um, you know, my son, 17, um, we've started watching like more, I don't know, like adult like R-rated movies from the past, you know, couple decades, and this is we watched these two movies last year, and both really, really enjoyed them again. Yeah. Um. I don't have anything. Yeah, I don't. Either. You know, I do have one minor complaint that I've never understood, and that's the Beatrix Kiddo thing. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that her name is is bleeped in the first movie, where they they won't tell you what her name is. Yeah. And then it's like revealed, but it's like who cares? I guess. Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't make any sense. And I I, I I do agree with that. I've never really got what if there was a joke there or anything like that. I I, I think really... I think maybe that's the joke because you're supposed to think it's going to be some revelation, and then it's just a name. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it doesn't even matter. I mean, I mean, I I always thought well, maybe the joke is that Beatrice is not the name of a super assassin. Maybe. Like, it's like, it's just something common. Yeah, it's just like, a name. Right. And maybe that was the joke. Like, and it's a silly last name to some degree. Like, you know, I mean, it's a silly name, Beatrice Kiddo. It's all, I mean, maybe it's also because, like, they romanticize the idea that, you know, it's Black Mamba and Rocky yeah, right. Mountain. Sure. And Copperhead. And, well, like, yeah. all, they have all these, like, snake right. names and they're right. the, the deadly venoms or whatever. Yeah, and, sure. Then they're all just, like, regular people. Right, Basically, yeah. with... That came yeah. from regular lives. And it does make sense to do that in the second movie because you are... I think you're humanizing her more in the second movie where the first movie is about her overcoming these, like, incredible odds. Yeah. You know? And then the second movie is about her, like, starting to become more human. I mean, you start this... You start the second movie with her lying there dying. So it's like it's it's obviously there to like you're supposed to be feeling some more sympathy for yeah. in the second movie. So maybe that's the whole point. Maybe. Is like you you give her a name finally. I mean, you could. I I don't know if Tarantino intended any of it. You, we could sit here and talk about like the idea of like giving something a name 
you know, somehow, like, takes power away from it and stuff like that. And I, I, I wonder if that's the point is, like, when she's the bride or she's, you know, whatever she is, like, whatever her nickname was, like, in the group. Black Mamba. Black Mamba. It's like, you know, when she's that, like, you know, she's mythical in some way. Yeah. But it's like by naming her, you take that power away from her and you make her human. But the funny thing about that is that it's only to you as the viewer. Yeah. But, because... I mean, I mean, maybe it ties into the Bill's speech because that's what he tells her is that... You know, uh, Beatrix Kiddo is, you know, um, just like Clark Kent is Superman's, you know, commentary on the world about the weakness of man and the doubt and all those things. That's what Beatrix Kiddo is to Black Mamba is what he's telling her. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So maybe that's what it's about is like Beatrix Kiddo... um, The life she tried to live, like like by going and getting pregnant and everything is, you know, this unfulfilling life that is like the social commentary and she's beyond she's above that so maybe that's the idea that's that's good analysis and i'm fine with that yeah but her sitting there in a classroom it's yeah it's it's, it's just it's, it's stupid jarring it's stupid fourth wall breaking yeah. i agree jarring and unnecessary i guess yeah. but an incredibly minor quibble in a movie that I sure think is absolutely like roundly perfect in a lot of ways yeah. um one of my favorite movies of all time definitely my favorite tarantino movie yeah. Amazing performances by all those actors. This is a movie I could sit down and watch right now if I, if I, you know, like, and I would have no qualms yeah. about doing them. Um, but same here, because um, I still think there's stuff I don't. It's like unlike what we were talking about, Fury Road. It's like I don't think I. I think there's so much packed in this movie. I don't think I've taken everything away from it that I can yet. That um, could be true. I, every time I see it, I I feel like I catch something small yeah. that maybe I didn't catch before. Sure. It's like, I feel like, like a lot of Bergman movies and stuff. It's like, I feel like I could watch them like every five years and still take something new away from it that I haven't like fully like sucked like the marrow out of those yeah. movies, you know? And it's, uh, well, that's interesting too, because I think, I mean, we, we're going to, we'll talk about Bergman at length at some point. I'm sure. Because like maybe my favorite director, him and Kurosawa. But, um, I think it's because it speaks to different points in your life in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like. To me, I mean, my my son is is almost an adult now. So, I mean, he was born when this movie came out. Um, but I really find, like, a lot of connection to her, like, you know, like her maternal instincts and his paternal instincts and the sense that this is about, like, the child. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily took anything more from it the older I got, but I definitely enjoy it just as much. And it certainly, like, visually and, you know, stylistically is always captivating. So. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, that's our list for the week. Uh, if you wanted to email us any suggestions for a list that you had, you can contact us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. That is Two, the number uh, two and five, two guys, five movies at gmail.com. You can also use that to find us on Facebook to friend us, um, and you can find us on Twitter there. Um, lastly, I just want to say I just read um, on my phone that apparently 72 trillion um, gallons of water has been dropped uh, on the Carolinas so far. Um, they're counting five dead so far, so uh, best wishes to everyone. Um, that's dealing with yeah, that's that. Crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks for listening.